I saw your be good baker running by again the other day, says I to old Mr. Brennan. Ah, yes, says he. I've never seen her stand still. And she's running rings around the rest of us with our Brennan's be good bread. Only 60 calories a slice. 60 calories, says I. That's just a whole meal, is it? No, says he. It's the whole meal, the whole grain, and the waste. 60 calories a slice and high in fiber, whatever way it slices. That's why anything baked is better with Brennan's. Today's bread today. On this week's Big Tech Show, Ireland's biggest drone delivery company looks set to cover Dublin by the end of the year. MANA boss Bobby Healy tells us about his goal to be one of the biggest companies in the world. We want to win big here. We don't want to be one player of a 500 different drone companies. We want to be the biggest thing the world has ever seen. We want to be in every single suburban household on the planet. To do that, you start with things that are high adoption, high frequency products. You go straight to the coffees and the takeaway food. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. You're listening to the Indo Daily. Now, a special episode from our sister podcast, The Bell Tell. Here we are. It's been 25 years since the Belfast Agreement came into being. It was the era of David Trimble, John Hume and Bill Clinton. After a 30-year winter of sectarian violence, Northern Ireland today has the promise of a springtime of peace. Even Bono managed to secure his place in the story. To introduce you to two men who are making history. Out of the past and into the future. We want to join them, but first, we want them to join together with us on this stage. After a generation of bloodshed and division, Northern Ireland's politicians managed, eventually, to sit down, talk and agree on something. The agreement was an historic moment. I am from a different generation. There is a different generation of people here and elsewhere throughout the United Kingdom. We want to move on and we want to move forward. That voice of reason is what I want to ring out loud and clear here in Northern Ireland. Not everyone was on board with it. The answer tomorrow from the people of Northern Ireland will be no to terrorists released onto our streets, no to Jerry Adams and Norman, no surrender to the enemies of Ulster. Goodbye. But in the end, most of us voted for it. Yes, 71.12%. And whilst there have been many tragedies since, we have not returned the widespread violence of the Troubles. Solicitor and commentator Sarah Crichton and political scientist and commentator David McCann were too young to vote for or against the agreement. But they are of the generation who grew up in the society it created. They join me now. Sarah, David, you're very welcome to The Bell Tale. So I think the obvious question, David and Sarah, to start off with, do you remember when the Good Friday Agreement was agreed? Um, for me, yes, I do. Um, I remember um, I remember the day, because uh, I remember, obviously back then, for anyone who's younger listening to this, certainly in my home, we only had a handful of TV channels. This was before Sky TV entered, uh, entered my house, so you had much more limited choice. Um, uh, and it was all over the main news, um, so BBC and UTV, 
uh, were covering it extensively. And I remember my parents and my grandparents uh, talking about this um, a lot. And I, it was odd because I remember in school, I was in P5 at the time, but I remember my teachers talking about it and they never really talked politics in, in school. Um, they never really talked, but I heard my teachers talking about this, this new peace agreement and the referendum that was set to come uh, of it as well. Because don't forget, once the agreement happened, the campaign started almost immediately for the referendum to happen the following month. So I remember, uh, I remember the day, I remember my parents talking a lot about it. And uh, and you did get the sense of I me, mean, I'm not going to pretend sitting there as a, as a 10 year old that I understood the intricacies of what was being agreed. But I did. But, but I did know that something big was happening and something something new was happening. Sarah. Yeah, I, I was thinking about it the other day. Um, I was writing about um, for an article, you know, I do have memories of it. Um, they're very vague kind of way. I, I don't know if it's just the baby brain, but, you know, I remember um, it coming through the letterbox in this, this envelope. And I remember my mum reading it in the dinner in the in the living room um, I remember my grandparents kind of discussing it and I remember it being on the news um, my parents kind of shielded us really from politics in Northern Ireland when I was younger um, so I, I don't remember kind of remember there was something happening but I didn't really understand why and I remember being in school and one lunchtime this boy pointed up at the hills around my school and they had like a giant no painted in white letters on the hill um, and then I remember my mom going out to vote for it very clearly. So she stood at the door and she just said, you know, I don't really like this, but I'm going to vote yes for you guys, really was what she said. And then she went out the door. Um, and then I kind of remember they voted for it and there was there was a vague sense that people were quite happy about something. Um, so it, all my memories really are just kind of a bit blurry, all kind of in different wee pieces. Um, but I, I have a very clear memory of being it from that point onwards of, of things being very different from what they were before. Um, as particularly, you know, because to say that my parents, you know, would have shielded us quite a lot from the troubles in Northern Irish politics. And then after that period of time, you know, I remember there being a lot more talk about politics around the table. I remember, you know, um, seeing, you know, Paisley on the TV and things like that. So it, it definitely, I definitely remember a shift at the time back in 1998. It's 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 interesting you said your mum read it. Uh, so many people that I've spoken to recently and interviews that I've heard with that other people have done, especially people who voted no. And, and this reason for voting no was because I read it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, certainly when I was at Queen's at the time, so I'm a little older than both of you. Um, and again, because the vast majority of unionists organise unionism on campus rejected um, mm-hmm. the Good Friday Agreement and migrated then from the UUP to the DUP and the Republicans, Sinn Féin, other Republican societies, completely blanked, blanket opposition to the Good Friday Agreement. So mm. uh, my, my my memories of it are pro- perhaps not as positive as other people because I remember all of these large blocks of, of politically motivated students were opposed to the Good Friday Agreement, yet clearly the majority of, our, of the population were for it. Do you think, do, do, do we... Have we forgot about those who voted no? I, yes and no. <laughs> um, I I don't think so. We haven't because the anti-agreement unionists have become dominant within unionism. You know, the DEP have overtaken the Ulster Unionist Party. Their branch of unionism really has has dominated since uh, the, the early 2000s. And I think that cynicism about the DEP or sorry, cynicism about the agreement really um, has dominated, I think, really since the Australian Unionists have been kicked out of office. Um, 
But at the same time, yes, I do think we have because I think we often remember, we often forget the reasons why some people voted no. So, you know, I was talking there about my mom, you know, the one thing that, that my family find very hard to digest and I think other families find very hard to digest was the release of political prisoners. That was a very bitter pill for a lot of people to swallow. Um, and I think really post-troubles, you know, we ended up watching I love commentary recently from people who are victims and things like that and about how really they felt very sidelined since 1998. You know, some people voted no because they were very angry about what had happened to them. and They didn't think the Good Friday Agreement adequately addressed that. So I think both those things are really happening at once. Um, I do think the people who voted no, though, I think adapted as time went on. I think they kind of came to accept the status quo, if not absolutely wholeheartedly embrace the Good Friday Agreement going forward. Um, but I do think we forget the reasons why people voted no. David, nationalism seemed to, in the end, and certainly in terms of the referendum, seemed to really come out in support of the Good Friday Agreement. But again, did everyone read it or was it just the emotion of the thing? Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, 95% plus of nationalist voters uh, voted yes. Um, one of the reasons why we were able to, the, the Yes campaign was able to run up such a high score of 71% was because there was near unanimity amongst um, amongst the nationalist um, electorate for the, for the agreement. Look, uh, every household did get a copy of the agreement. The British government did send one out to everyone's door. It did come through everyone's... Um, everyone's uh, letterbox. Now, how many of those people uh, of the 81% of people who came out to vote, how many of those people read it? Or, if, you know, I think probably a better question is how many of those people understood it? Because we were being introduced to these these ideas of the hunt, for example. I mean, how many people knew what the hell the hunt was, you know, when that was being talked about? Remember, Northern Ireland in, in 1998, the last time it had any form of self-government was in 1974, and that had lasted a grand total of five months. So I think that most people probably didn't. I think it was an emotional thing. It was an instinctive thing. If you look at the campaign, the campaign was totally ran on emotion. It, it, it was ran on emotion, you know, particularly within, I think Sarah's right to point out about unionism, you know, the, the emotions on the unionist side were so, so high because there was a sense that 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 they were having to concede a lot. You know, I remember I watched a, in preparation for this, um, a documentary, the crew that followed David Trimble around during the, during the referendum campaign and they went behind the scenes. And the emotion in the rooms that he went to in the orange halls in those places was was just was just so incredible. And on the nationalist side, this was seen as pretty much a big stepstone toward a united Ireland. They had got a border poll inserted into the agreement. They were getting north-south bodies really formalized for the first time as well. So for nationalism, this was just seen as another as another stepping stone on the process towards Irish unity. Can I? I was going to say. Sorry. Sorry. Can I just say, you no, know, I was going to say, um, the interesting thing, though, is it's always very strange how unionism has always seen it as a loss, and maybe we'll come on to that. But, you know, unionism did get quite a lot of wins out of the agreement as well in terms of North, securing Northern Ireland's place in the union, you know, it legitimises British sovereignty in Northern Ireland by consent. Um, it, it has in it that a majority wish to remain in the union at that time. Obviously, that, that doesn't mean that's going to remain forever. So the, it is always quite interesting, I think, that, that nationalism saw it as a win and a lot of unionists saw it as a loss. But I think really for, for my family, um, they really, you know, the troubles, obviously my family were very lucky, we weren't really, we didn't lose anyone, but obviously everybody was affected by the troubles in some way. Um, for them, really, it was, it was as David says, the emotion. It was just very much, you know, the, those adverts about your children. You know, my, my, my family still get quite angry about some of the things that went through the troubles and they always say, well, thank goodness you, don't, you didn't have to go through that. And I think that's that's that what that is what won I think a lot of unionists over to the yes side. 
And that's the question. What exactly was the agreement? What was agreed? To try and answer that, I spoke a little earlier to Belfast Telegraph reporter Andrew Madden. So what was the Good Friday Agreement? The Good Friday Agreement was a multi-party agreement between most of Northern Ireland's political parties and also an international agreement between the British and Irish governments. It largely put an end to 30 years of violence which had engulfed Northern Ireland and, to a lesser extent, the Republic of Ireland. So what was agreed? The Good Friday Agreement restored self-governance in Northern Ireland and is made up of three strands. Strand 1 set up the Northern Ireland Assembly and the Executive, and Strand 2 dealt with North South's issues. This included setting up uh, bodies between Northern Ireland and the Republic, including the North-South Ministerial Council, in order to enhance cooperation between the two countries. Strand 3 focused on East-West cooperation between Britain and Ireland and set up a number of East-West bodies, including the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference and the British-Irish Council. The Good Friday Agreement also led to policing reform, which saw the RUC transformed into the Police Service of Northern Ireland and enshrined into law the principle of consent which stated that if the majority of those in Northern Ireland wished to remain a part of the UK, it was their right to do so, but also if the majority in Northern Ireland wanted to become part of the United Ireland, that was also their right. The Good Friday Agreement also saw hundreds of paramilitary prisoners released from prison. Thank you, Andrew. Sarah, you're a lawyer. David, you're a political scientist. And the Good Friday Agreement was written in what they called const- in a cons- constructive ambiguity. I remember that at the time. And I thought to myself, perhaps as a naive young person at university, I thought that constructive ambiguity was a nice way of saying bull. And, uh, you know, for the people that read it, uh, for a lot of people say, well, if you read it, you, you know, there was a lot of kick in that tin down the line. And I just wonder... Is that typical of how such an agreement is written? Yes, it is. So if you look at the Windsor framework, which we've recently just had, perfect example. Uh, You saw within just even a few hours, the European Union had one spin on what the document was and the British government had another spin on the document because many parts of it are ambiguous and loads of agreements do tend to be ambiguous um, when they are designed. It's not unique to us. The only issue with the ambiguity, I suppose, is that it has led to the sense now 25 years on that a lot of the agreement just has not been properly implemented. And again, when you've got such ambiguous text, well, the 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 definition of implementation, I suppose, is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, some people may think the agreement has gone off in a different direction than it was intended. Um, but it had to be that way because it, in essence, you know, whilst, yes, it was 50% plus one to get the agreement passed, that was never going to be enough. You needed a majority of unionists, a majority of nationalists. Both the British and Irish governments knew that, that basically if nationalists uh, voted for it, um, uh, but unionists overall rejected it, that was going to be a disaster for David Trimble and it was going to make the agreement unsellable. So it needed to be that way, really, to get it to get it through the referendum. Sarah, it's been described in court as an aspirational document. So... <laughs> Um, that's one way to look at it. No, the constructive ambiguity is, is how is how you know these agreements, as David says, are done. You, you know, everybody has to get something out of it. Everybody had to have something they could take back to their voters and sell and win. Um, so that is why it is ambiguous. That is why it it is open to interpretation, which is think is which is why we have a lot of problems now 
with the agreement in terms of how it is being weaponized and used, especially post-Brexit, in terms of how people view that document and have have tried to use it to to actually further their political aims. So, you know, the idea that it was just, the, the agreement was a stepping stone to Irish unity, I mean, that was the argument of a lot of anti-agreement unionists. That's what they said, but that's not how it was sold. That's not how it was how it was sold to a lot of different people. Um, but now, because of this ambiguity, you, you, you get lots of different arguments over, you know, for instance, Brexit doesn't mean there can't be a hard border between North and South, doesn't mean there can't be a border down the Irish Sea. No, in my view, it doesn't say anything about them. Um, but this is how you have to do things. Everybody had to get something else out of it. And yes, it is an aspirational document. I think it, it does kind of set, I think, a good groundwork to build upon. I think it is something we need to go back to sometimes to find our way forward. But equally, as I'm sure maybe we'll come on to discuss, I think it is also a document that we have to look at and examine and review going forward. And I think 25 years down the line, um, I do think we need to look at it again and maybe see if we maybe have progressed past some of the things in the agreement. I just wonder, has it left us all disappointed? I mean, I suppose some advisors to unionism, especially people, you know, in the South were saying, you know, agree this and nationalism, Sinn Féin, they will fade away and people will be content in uh, in Northern Ireland. And that hasn't happened. Others thought mm. it was a stepping stone to United Ireland. That hasn't happened. Others thought that 25 years on, we would all be an integrated education. We would all be Northern Irish and we would have settled into this new identity and we'd all have moved on. I think we all want to move on, but in three different directions. Yeah, it, it, it's, I think the problem with the Good Friday Agreement is, is, is it, it, it removed the absence of violence from society, which like, we, can't, we cannot downplay how important that was. And that has been an unparalleled success. You know, I did not grow up with the same experience as my, as my parents. Um, my son will grow up in a very, very different society. He will have absolutely no memory of, of what his grandparents went through. Um, you know, when you, you listen to people talk about their loss and what they suffered, I never, ever want my son to have to go through that. But yes, you know, you, you the way it's used, the way it's viewed, it, it has to be, you know, we, we have to look at these things again, I think, going forward. Um, and I, I think, you know, it, I think the, the Good Friday proposed a challenge to everyone. So they said to nationalists, look, if you want United Ireland, you're going to have to convince people to vote for it. Unionists, you, you want to keep Northern Ireland, you can't just do it by by topping up every Protestant head and saying, there you go, there's our country. You're going to have to persuade people around to this. You're going to have to work together and build a country for each other. And I don't think we've achieved that 25 years down the line. David, I wonder... You know, we're talking about building on the agreement. Uh, you know, it's been changed many times. We've had St. Andrews. We've had many other agreements. Stormont doesn't function. I mean, we're speaking about it as if, uh, is it still a living thing? Is it, or, or is this simply an historical event? Um, no, well, look, it is still a living thing in terms of, obviously, we have changed the Good Friday Agreement since it was brought um, since it was brought in. We've had St. Andrews. We've had the Hillsborough Agreement. We've had Fresh Start. We've had Stormont House, uh, we've had New Decade New Approach. So, I mean, th this agreement has had amendments to it, and we have had different um, different um, uh, changes made to it uh, throughout the 25 years. I mean, I would anticipate that there will be more. I would anticipate that as Northern Ireland politics and society changes, there will be more. Um, Northern Ireland is a much more diverse place than it was 25 years ago, uh, not just in terms of um, you know, unionism losing its majority, but in terms of the number of uh, ethnic minorities in Northern Ireland has substantially grown since then and is projected to grow even further over the next 10 years, that's going to have big changes to our society as well. So, look, it, it has to be regarded as a living thing. Um, you know, all governance structures are, are living things and, uh, and they do have to move and evolve as well. Sarah, I mean, you've mentioned 
you know, change, reform, building on the agreement. I mean, what would you like to see? What, 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 what do you want? I would like to see us start moving towards a voluntary coalition model. I think um, how that takes shape, I don't know. Um, but I, I really do think we have to move past the point where one party can basically collapse the institutions going forward. I, I don't see how the institutions survive um, if we don't change this, basically. Um, I think we need to work on that. I do think there needs to be space to recognize the other grouping, though I definitely think that has to have everybody needs to be on board with that. You can't just go in unilaterally and change it to make to make uh, to change the rules for, for one grouping in society because as much as we talk about the growth of the middle ground, the majority of people in Northern Ireland still vote for Unionist and Nationalist Party. So we have to remember that. Um, I think I would like to change the rules so as to how certain mechanisms are used. So, you know, very often you hear people talking about, you know, the petition of concern um, and the vetoes and the executive and will say, oh, you know, these things were introduced to protect minorities. No, they weren't. Um, maybe they were mentioned in negotiations as being like that. It says nothing in the law about using them in that regard. And until somebody actually changes the rules to specify when these things can be used, every party can use them as much as they want. Um, I think we need to build upon things like the Civic Forum. I think that was a fantastic thing that really should have been introduced many years ago. Um, I think we really need to talk about how we're going to actually live together. You know, I think 25 years down the line, I get the impression that really some of our political leaders sit in office with each other and they kind of pinch their nose. There's no proper move of reconciliation. We need to look at the past. Um, I think what the British government's doing in terms of the amnesty bill is terrible. I think it's going to make that worse. You know, we, we have to actually work on living together, respecting and understand each other. That doesn't mean we have to agree with each other. I don't know how we move forward as a society unless we do that. David, can we move on somewhere? What, what could come next? Um, well, I think that, you know, you said it very well about, you know, we're moving in kind of three different directions. Obviously, for Sinn Féin, their, their big thing is going to be trying to get us toward a border poll as soon as possible. Um, that's going to be very much their emphasis and their focus as well. Obviously, for the Alliance Party, they're very much about reform and very much about reforming the structures of government to get to get more uh, to get more influence into the the other designation, which doesn't have as much at the minute. And then obviously for unionism, look, I mean, it's it's really going to be seeing what this post-Brexit Britain looks like. You know, it really is going to see what the post-Brexit United Kingdom looks like. And I think that that won't take shape until probably after the next general election, um, when either I would imagine one or other gets a decisive victory. Um, uh, and then the next four or five years become the the, the Brexit Britain essentially gets shaped um, uh, and we get to see what this actually looks like. So I think there's still a lot more um, speed pumps ahead for the agreement. I still think there's a lot of things to to to, to navigate as well coming down the track uh, because politics has just been so turbulent since 2016 and just so unpredictable. Um, uh, so again, it, it's very hard to see what, what actually happens uh, between, between now and then. Folks, is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about or that we should talk about? I think really, I think we need to also just talk about the state of Northern Ireland post Good Friday Agreement. And, you know, I saw a tweet today from one um, student activist saying how she felt very depressed watching the celebrations for the 25 year anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement because she said it was, she was finding it hard to get a job. The health service was in tatters. She couldn't buy her own home. You know, I, I think there's a risk that we come into this agreement. And obviously, yes, we need to take stock. We need to remember how far we've come. And as I said, I don't think we should downplay the successes that the agreement has had in terms of of, of stopping an entire generation of children um, from having to live through violence and what our parents went through. But 
for a lot of young people, it's just not enough. You know, that that's in the past. They're going up now. You know, they, they don't want to carry that forward. They want to know how they're going to be able to live in society and put food on the table and raise families and, and travel and enjoy their lives. And I, I, I think really, you know, we look at the events that are being organised with all well, these, you know, very large figureheads and statesmen um, and stateswomen. Um, I think we need to come back to that. You know, I think if, if the agreement doesn't deliver in terms of making people... Um, think that they have moved forward and you know i think for the northern Ireland, really there's only really certain communities have been able to move forward i think a lot of communities still have not been able to because they have been left behind and they haven't um gained really very much since since the agreement has been made so i think that really should be a huge focus going forward as well you know we're talking about reform but you know we, we need to everybody needs to participate in society and i think whether you want the united ireland or not that that needs to be done going forward David, you're a politics lecturer. You speak to younger people, those people, your students, for the vast majority, they they were born after the Good Friday Agreement at this stage, I take it. I'm, I'm just wondering, and I'm very conscious that, and I haven't asked anyone, I mean, you neither of you had the, the chance to vote, So, but I think I can say safely say that I don't have a representative of the anti-agreement uh, grouping now. I think... Perhaps that's quite rhetorical at this stage. But do you think talking to the young people who would be reasonably informed, because they're studying politics at Ulster University, how do you think they reflect on the agreement? I think for them it's a fairly abstract document, to be honest with you. Um, I think they, you know, there there is, it's hard to conceive of a place that was just so different um, as well. It'd probably be a bit like me trying to think about what Northern Ireland was like in the in the lead up to the Troubles, you know, I've always been fascinated with Northern Ireland in the 10 years leading up to the Troubles because I just wanted to conceive of what that was like. Um, uh, so it's very hard, I think, for them to have a link to it because they, they, they've only ever known in a, a post-agreement Northern Ireland. I think as Sarah is saying that they that they do have a lot of other concerns around, you know, um, around, you know, their cost of living, around their opportunities, you know, they're they're making life decisions at this stage, you know, about where they're going to live, what job they're going to do, they're going to have to move away, all these different type of things as well. So I think um, I think that that's very much uh, their their focus. And I think it I think their focus is very much on it's on those things. They still obviously will have views on the Constitution. Uh, they still will obviously have views on um, on future directions. But again, I, I think there is much more elasticity with voters coming up now, people who are coming in or who've just started voting or maybe are just about to vote for the first time. I think they will they will move around political parties much more. I think they will move around their opinions much more so than maybe some of us who've grown up a wee bit earlier in life. Um, I, I think there's more there's more general fluidity in the electoral system than, than, than there once was. David McCann, Sarah Crichton, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from ITV, UTV, RTE, Channel 4, AP and the BBC.